0: Well good morning and welcome to First Baptist Church Online. My name is Steve Polk. I'm the executive pastor here and we're excited to bring you another uh, encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. Uh, Our pastor is going to be speaking today out of Jonah chapter 4 and and a few other places around the book of Jonah talking about when good people do bad things. This will be a very interesting message I know you're going to want to engage with. Grab your notebook your copy of God's Word in a pen and get ready to take some notes. Uh, we look forward every week to what God is going to teach us through His Word, and that's why we center our ministry on the Word of God. And so let's pray together as our pastor comes today. God, we thank you for your Word. Without it, we'd have no rudder. We would have no understanding of history and the events that uh, that have led us to today. And you give us an ability to go back into your word to better understand today in light of yesterday, in light of the truths you've given us that transcend time. And so today, as we look at the book of Jonah, and better understand some application there that you would challenge us with it, that you'll shape us and you'll grow us because of it and call us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Happy Lord's Day, everybody. Pastor Steve here. So excited you're worshiping Jesus with us. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it with me to the book of Jonah, chapter 4, uh, because today I want to talk about when good people, when God's people are wrong. I really, and, uh, and I've always been this way, enjoy reading history and biographies and so on. I learn a lot from other people's experiences, from the past that helps me understand life. and. And some years ago, I read a lot about Richard Furman. Now, many of you may not know who Richard Furman was. He lived in the late 1700s, the early 1800s. Uh, You'll recognize Furman University here in South Carolina. That university is named after him. In Baptist history, in Baptist life, Richard Furman was a very... Very important and influential figure did a lot of great things uh, in so many ways such a good man and i won't go into all the details of of what he did, but I, w- I want to talk about him as it relates to the issue of slavery, which, as you know, was very prominent as an issue uh, in America and in the South in the late seventeen hundreds and early eighteen hundreds in his early days as a as a man of God, as a preacher. Richard Furman was anti-slavery. He wrote against it. He preached against it. But later in life, for some reason, he changed his mind. And he actually preached sermons in support of slavery. He wrote a book that outlined the biblical, the moral, and philosophical reasons that slavery was acceptable, and much of what he said became the talking points for years after that for people in the South who attempted to justify slavery. And here's this man that that in so many ways was so intelligent and so godly and so good, and yet in this one very significant area he was wrong. He he had a major character flaw. He was he was blind, if you will, to the biblical teaching about slavery, and, and as a result he sinned. Not only did he support it, in the latter part of his life he actually owned slaves. Wow. So today I want I want to ask the question how? Why? Can God's people, okay, uh, people who are in many ways really good people, godly people, still have such a huge character flaw? Be guilty of such a great sin? Well, you and I can learn something from the story of Jonah, the prophet, found in the Old Testament. So I invite you again to look with me in in the book of Jonah in chapter four. Now, the story of the first three chapters, as many of you know, is uh, Jonah received a commandment from God to go from Israel. And remember, um, the 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 nation of Israel had gone through a civil war and divided into two countries: the Southern Kingdom of Judah with Jerusalem as the capital and the northern kingdom of Israel or sometimes Samaria and the city of Samaria was its capital. And Jonah was a prophet in the north. And God spoke to Jonah and said, Jonah, go to Nineveh, a major city of over 100,000 people to the east, and preach to them, warn them, because I'm getting ready to judge them and destroy them if they don't repent. What did Jonah do? He did not go to Nineveh. In fact, he went the opposite direction. He went west toward the Mediterranean Sea, got on the ship, running the opposite direction, disobeying God. God, in judgment, sent a storm, and eventually Jonah was thrown overboard. God sent a great fish to swallow him. In the belly of the fish for three days and nights, Jonah prayed. At the end of that, God had the fish spit him up on dry land. God came to Jonah a second time, gave him a second chance, and commanded him a second time, go to Nineveh and warn them. This time Jonah went to Nineveh and he walked up and down the streets and he preached and, and the people responded from the, from the most powerful to the weakest. They repented. They, 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 they got right with God and God in compassion relented of his judgment and spared the people of Nineveh, spared that great, great city. But Jonah was not happy about it. The truth is Jonah, and this is my word because the Bible doesn't use it, but I think it accurately describes how Jonah felt and thought. Jonah hated the people of Nineveh, and he was angry. The Bible does say this. He was angry that they had repented and that God had forgiven them instead of destroying them. Look at Jonah's reaction in chapter 4 of his book, verse 1. It greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. What displeased Jonah? That they had repented, that God had forgiven them, that God had not destroyed them. Now look at verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. It's like Jonah going on a hill to the east of the city, sitting down so he can look back and see the city and its inhabitants. And there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade, protecting himself from the hot sun. Until he could see what would happen in the city. Even though they had repented and God had forgiven and spared the people of the city. Jonah goes out there and builds a makeshift shelter. And and he sits under it watching, watching, hoping that maybe God changes his mind and destroys the people of Nineveh anyway. How can you describe that response to what the Ninevites did in repenting and God forgiving and sparing them? How can you describe that in any other way except to say Jonah hated the people of Nineveh? And in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, Jonah knew God was a compassionate God, a forgiving God. And, And he tells God in those verses, the reason I did not go to Nineveh the first time but instead ran the opposite way and disobedience to you is because I knew this is what you would do. It's like Jonah's arguing with God and said, God, I knew in your compassion and mercy you would forgive them and spare them. I didn't want that. I did not want them to repent. I did not want them to to be spared. I wanted them to die. I wanted them to to be uh, destroyed. Again, Jonah had this emotional, this visceral hatred For the people of Nineveh. And so what does God do? He confronts Jonah. Later in chapter 4, God allows a plant to grow up quickly overnight and add additional shade to Jonah. Better shade than what his makeshift shelter had provided. And Jonah is all happy and thankful. The next morning, God sends a worm to eat the plant, and it withers and dies. And now he's sitting there in the hot sun with very little shade, and he's miserable. He's miserable. And Jonah Jonah gets upset. Look in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Says God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. Then verse eight, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. You ever been outside when it's not only hot but the wind is blowing and and the, and the air is so hot the blowing wind just makes it worse. That's what Jonah was feeling. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul. Notice that with all I mean he was emotionally imploring God to let him die, saying Death is better to me than life. God is me living means I have to see the Ninevites survive and be forgiven. I'd rather die. Wow, you talk about hatred for the people and and he's upset. He's upset that this plant Had died. Now God speaks, God confronts, God confronts Jonah, and He speaks to him in verses 10 and 11. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant, okay? You you cared about that plant. You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow. You had compassion for that plant. Now look at verse 11. God says, Jonah, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? By the way, who created human beings? God. Who's the creator of the people of Nineveh? God. God says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, that great city, which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Should I not have compassion on them when they repent of their sins and get right with me? Jonah, you care more about a plant. And you do those people such, such hatred. Now, here's the question. Are you ready? Why did Jonah hate the people of Nineveh so much? Now, remember, Jonah's a prophet of God. Jonah, in many ways, is a really good man. But when it came to this group of people, he didn't love them. He had no compassion for them. He didn't want them to be spared. He wanted them to die. He hated them. Why? I mean, life for Jonah was pretty good. He's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, so we know exactly when Jonah lived and preached. We're told it was when Jeroboam II was king of Israel or Samaria, the Northern Kingdom. And we know from the book of Kings and history that that was a time of economic prosperity. A time when the army of Israel, the Northern Kingdom was strong enough they won battles and expanded their borders. So it was a time of economic prosperity, a time of military security. It was a, it was a time of, of, it was a good time. It was a good time, a prosperous time in the Northern Kingdom where Jonah lived. A few years earlier, though, it had been a different story. When Jonah's parents were young and when his grandparents were, were were living, it wasn't a good time in their nation. In fact, the the economy was struggling, the military was weak. They had been invaded by other armies that that took some of their outlying lands. and so the nation had grown smaller and weaker. And Nineveh was one of the leading cities of those nations that earlier had attacked and impoverished Israel and made life difficult, hard for his parents and grandparents. In Jonah's day, Israel had the upper hand. But when his parents were young and his grandparents lived, Israel did not have the upper hand. Times were much, much harder. And in fact, about 50 years after Jonah, Nineveh would be the royal city and capital of the Assyrian Empire that would eventually completely eradicate, destroy the northern nation of Israel or Samaria. And I can imagine Jonah as a little boy growing up there in Israel, hearing his parents and grandparents talk about how hard life used to be. It's like when I was a young man listening to my grandfather you know, talk about the Great Depression and what things were like then. I can imagine Jonah hearing his grandparents and even his parents describe those Assyrians, those Ninevites, those armies that attacked us and And, and, and took some of our nation's land and, and how they made life hard and we suffered and we didn't have much, how difficult it was. And I I can imagine that everything he heard from his parents and grandparents about the Ninevites was bad. It was negative. And somehow that got ingrained in Jonah and shaped his outlook on life. And even though he was a man of God, a prophet of God, who in many ways was a good man in this one area, that something inside of him corrupted him. And he had hatred for the people of Nineveh. It shaped him. Can we be honest with ourselves? Our experiences often shape us, don't they? The context in which we live. Our culture often shapes us. What's going on in the world? What's what's the context? What's the culture? What's the environment? When we're a kid and we're growing up, what's what's the dynamics in our home, in our community, in our nation? What's the belief system? What's the culture? Our friends and our all, all of that can, can come together, can coalesce to influence us, and sometimes for good, but other times for bad, for evil, for sin. And that kind of pressure can be powerful. It was in Jonah's life. I believe in some ways that's what happened to Richard Furman. doesn't make it right, but it explains it to some extent. It's the reason that the majority, the majority, the overwhelming majority of churches in the South leading up to the Civil War supported slavery. It's the reason so many in the churches in the 1950s and 60s supported segregation even though it's unbiblical and it's a sin and it's wrong. The pressure of all this stuff can shape us and influence us even to the point of disobeying God. To the point of doing what is wrong rather than what is right. To the point of sinning and not choosing love. It happened to Jonah. It happened to Richard Furman. It's happened to a lot of God's people, good people, good people over the the years. And it's so powerful, it can be difficult to change, to overcome. See, the story of Jonah is is so real because Jonah never repented, not really. Sometimes people think in chapter 2 he did when he was in the fish. No, he didn't. When you read Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 very, very carefully, what it tells us is that when Jonah was thrown off the boat into the water of the Mediterranean Sea, he cried out for God to help him, God to rescue him from death and drowning. He didn't repent. He just asked God to help him, to save him. And God in mercy prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah to save his life. When you read his prayer in chapter 2, Jonah worshiped and thanked God for saving him, for rescuing him. But he never repented of his hatred of the Ninevites. Never repented of his disobedience to God by running away in the opposite direction. He was just glad God had saved him. God had the fish spit them out on dry land. And, and then God, at the beginning of chapter 3, came to Jonah a second time and said, Jonah, here's what I want you to do go to Nineveh and warn them. And this time, Jonah obeyed and he went to Nineveh and he preached, but not with love. He obeyed. Listen, you, you can obey God and not have a right heart. Jonah did. You can be religious. You can can do good things and the right things and be wrong on the inside. There's no record of Jonah ever repenting of his attitude toward the Ninevites. In fact, the story ends with God chastising him and and, and confronting Jonah by saying, You have compassion for that plant, but not for the people of Nineveh? Wow. Wow. He never had a change of heart. So what about us? What about me? What about you? Our culture, our friends, the place and the way we were raised and on and on we go shapes us and influences us. And maybe in my life and maybe in your life, there has been or there still are ways that that influence has shaped us in an ungodly way, a wrong way, an unbiblical way. How how do we overcome that? How do we change? Well, let me share with you real quickly some suggestions, some helps. Here's the first thing. We need, because we're, we're, we're not going to change on our own. We need God to confront us. I need that. You need that. We, we we need God to challenge us when we have those character flaws. We have those those ways in which we're wrong. Because of all these powerful influences that have shaped us more than 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 God's word, and that's what God did with Jonah. He confronted him, and and, and there are going to be times in my life, in your life, where God says, "Listen, I need to get your attention because something you're thinking, something you're feeling, something you're doing is wrong, and it needs to change." We need God to confront us, and when He does, it's uncomfortable. No, it's not fun. It's not. It's 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 not easy. See, if you want to go to church and just have everybody always agree with you about everything, always agree, agree with your attitudes, even when they're wrong, you can find that. But if you're going to be a man of God, you're going to be a woman of God. You and I, we 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 need God at times to confront us. Where is God? Trying to confront you. You you may not be listening. Maybe you are. I don't know. But but I would say somewhere deep in your heart and deep in your soul, you have a sense of it. You already know where God is trying to change you, where God is trying to grow you, where God is trying to confront you. We need God to confront us, to challenge us. The second thing is we need to be open. (laughs) We need to be open to God doing that just one thing for God to do it. It's another thing for me to be open to it. For you to be open to it. for Open to God correcting us and growing us and challenging us. Jonah Jonah was not. He didn't want to change. Are you open to it? Are you open to it? Are you willing to change if God confronts you? And then here's the third thing. We need to allow God's word to shape us More than the culture shapes us. God's word shape us more than we allow all of these outside pressures. Even the way we were raised to shape us. That's just another reason I am so thankful here at First Baptist for our Bible reading plan as we systematically read the word of God. So thankful for our D groups where we engage in a very systematic and intentional and effective way. We engage with God's word so that we can encounter Jesus Christ and be transformed and grow and become more and more like Jesus. The pressure. The pressure from the world, from the culture, from, from traditions, all, all the pressure we face that, that shapes us, it, it varies from generation to generation, from group to group, from one moment in history to another moment in history, from one person or one group to another person to another group. Part of my story is I was not raised in a Christian environment. I was not raised in a church-going family. My grandfather... My grandfather was what they used to call a yellow dog Democrat, which was a a term used especially for Democrats in the South who would say they'd rather vote for a yellow dog than for any Republican. My, My uncle, who was so influential, probably the most influential person in my becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, lived in Detroit in the 1960s during the race riots. And, and he allowed the church he was in and the environment he was in for that season of his life to influence him to misuse the Bible and in particular Genesis chapter 1 to justify segregation. This really godly good man that God used to bring me to faith in Christ had this one blind spot for a season in his life where I was raised. It was all whites, no blacks. That's part of my background. And so in the early 80s, I moved to Sumter, South Carolina. And God begins to confront me with things. Church had a bus ministry. And I can remember on Saturday going door to door with members of the church and inviting children to ride the bus. And I can remember one Saturday starting to go to a certain house. And one of the members said, don't go there. And I said, why not? They said, blacks live there. And I knew I was in a different world. God was confronting me. I remember the first Sunday that an African-American man attended one of our worship services. That Monday morning, an elderly gentleman in our church was in my office, all angry and mad, threatening to take his money and go to another church. And I have to confess, I'm not proud of how I handled that situation. I didn't agree with him. I didn't affirm him. But neither did I correct him. I tried to appease him. And afterward, God got hold of me. And I made a determination that going forward, I would be a truth teller when it comes to this issue. And not try to appease people, but hold forth the Word of God and the truth of God. And that's been a big part of my ministry. Ever since in that church in Sumter, I remember when black boys and girls began riding our bus, church buses, and we had several attend Vacation Bible School one summer. And and uh, early in the week, we took a photograph of of the all the kids in Bible school, one big group of a few hundred kids, and I had that put on a certificate. And on Friday, every child got one of those certificates with their name on it and that photograph. And I put those on bulletin boards around the church. And I can remember coming into the office one day and seeing where someone had taken an ink pen and drawn a circle around the face of each and every little black boy and girl. That was sinful. That was wrong. And I imagine that person in some ways was someone who went to church every Sunday but was a product, had been shaped more by the culture of his past Than by the Word of God. And any of us, any of us can have those kind of blind spots in our life where the culture is our God and God's Word is not preeminent, even if we don't know it, but it's there. That's why we need God to speak to us. Today, young people, Face a lot of societal pressure, whether it's on the issues of sexuality or gender identity, to, to not believe the word of God. Many liberal churches for a long, long time, it is as though they've been in bed with the Democrat Party. In recent days, in many conservative churches, it's as though they have been in bed with the Republican Party. And each group hates the other strongly dislikes the other talks bad about the other and many most are unwilling to ever criticize their own group even when their own group is wrong we need the holy spirit of god to take the word of god and confront us in these areas of blindness and character flaw and wrongness and sin So that we might be more like Jesus Christ. We don't need to allow the outside influences of culture. That are so ungodly. Even when they are painted with biblical terms. To come into the church. And create division among the people of God. We need to stand for what is holy. And what is righteous. And what is loving. And what is compassionate. You and I need to look in a mirror. And ask ourselves. Where in my life am I acting like Jonah? Look in the mirror and ask myself, ask yourself, Where in my life am I acting like Richard Furman? We we, we need to do some of the things Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 7 verses 3 and 4, Jesus said, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take out take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? We, we, we need to allow God to show us the log that is in our eye and stop worrying so much about the speck in everybody else's eye. We need to hear the words of Jesus. Jonah needed to hear the word of God. There are times I do and times you do. Now, can I give you one bit of really good news, encouraging news? God uses imperfect people. He used Jonah and he was far from perfect. God used Richard Furman and he was far from perfect. God used my uncle to bring me to faith in Christ, but he was far from perfect. The good news is that God still uses imperfect people. You don't have to have everything right. To serve God. But brothers and sisters. You don't want. You don't want God to confront you. And then you disobey him. You don't want God to talk to you. And you not listen. You don't want God to be speaking. And you be unwilling. To grow. So look in that. Metaphorical mirror. And say Holy Spirit show me. Where I'm like Jonah. Show me where I'm like Richard Furman. Show me where I'm wrong so I can get right and do better. Will you do that? Hey, God bless you, and I'll see you next Sunday.